So, have you had enough bread yet? <laughs> if you've been here for the past few weeks, you know that we are strolling lazily through the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John this season, hearing bite-sized bits each Sunday from this long section focused on bread. First, Jesus turning a few loaves into a feast for thousands, and then him engaging in this long and winding conversation with the crowds about himself as a sort of bread. The bread of life, the bread from heaven, the living bread. I haven't been with you these past weeks, but thanks to the lectionary, I have been following along. At my parents' church in Minnesota last Sunday, I heard the same reading you all did. Bread, bread, and more bread. We're not finished yet either, there are still two more Sundays to go of John 6 after this one. And as I was sitting on the plane this last week, flying back to Switzerland and utterly failing in my efforts at falling asleep, I just kept thinking, how can we read John 6 and not celebrate communion? We tend to draw a straight line between this passage and the sacrament, and there's good reason for that. There is Eucharistic language all over this chapter. The language of hunger and satisfaction and of Jesus offering himself as bread can't help but turn our minds to the communion table. And in fact, this chapter is as close as we come in the Gospel of John to an institution of the Lord's Supper. There is no Last Supper in John. Instead of sharing bread and wine with his friends on their last night together, Jesus washes their feet. So this that we're reading right now is it. This long chapter on Jesus as the bread of life is John's theology of communion. It is this gospel's meditation on that practice that emerged in the early Christian church and that remains at the center of our worship life today. So how can we read John 6 and not celebrate communion? It's like having Christmas Eve without singing Silent Night or an Easter vigil with no candles just seems strange. That's how I came to our reading for today. Sure that I knew what it was about, and therefore grumpy that we couldn't pair it with our familiar gathering around the table. But I was reminded this week that coming to Jesus with a closed mind like that doesn't usually work very well. You could just ask the crowds in John 6. The people who are gathered around Jesus in our reading today are the same folks who only yesterday found themselves the recipients of that miraculous meal on a hillside. With Jesus as their host, their bellies were filled with this most meager of offerings. And they recognize right away that this is no ordinary teacher. John says that they were ready to make him their king then and there, but he sort of slipped out unnoticed and crossed the sea with his disciples. So the following day, these crowds go looking for him eager for more of the same, eager for more bread, more miracles, more fireworks from this clearly very powerful teacher. What they get instead is a lot of words and increasingly difficult ones about the bread that endures and truly satisfies, unlike the meal they had yesterday that will undoubtedly leave them hungry the next morning. Initially, the crowd stays curious, asking him questions about this miraculous bread, where they can get it, how they can live for it. Sir, give us this bread always, they say. And then things take a turn. 
This mysterious bread isn't a new type of superfood that Jesus can just start passing around then and there. No, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It's me. This person standing in front of you with dust on his sandals and calluses on his hands. I am what will satisfy you. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Up until this point, the crowds were basically going along with him. But now a murmuring begins. Now people start saying to one another, wait just a minute. Who does this guy think he is? You might have noticed that our translation says the Jews began to complain about him. It's important to mention that everybody in this scene, and virtually everybody in the whole Gospel of John, is Jewish. It's not just the religious leaders, but also Jesus and his disciples and his family and the crowds all around them. The original context for this Gospel is Jewish. And behind the scenes here is a growing conflict between some early Jewish Christians and their families and neighbors. All that to say, there's an old Jewish family debate behind this gospel. And we can sort of see that debate coming to the surface in our reading today. And we should take great care not to equate the Jewish faith as a whole, then or now, with John's sort of shorthand term here, the Jews. So back to the story. The crowds start complaining. Isn't this Jesus from Nazareth? That little town down the road? What does he mean he came down from heaven? We know very well where he came from. We know his parents. Jesus hears these complaints going through the crowd and he keeps trying to engage his audience, talking about his closeness with God, about the eternal life that he offers. But it seems the crowd isn't really listening anymore. From this point on in John 6, all they do is grumble and finally leave. They came looking for Jesus with one thing on their minds, this meal he provided yesterday. And when he takes the conversation in different and challenging directions, that settled mindset blinds them to everything else he has to say right now. So coming to Jesus with a closed mind doesn't work very well. It didn't work well for the crowds in that reading. And I got to thinking that maybe I was doing the same thing coming to this story with communion and only communion on my mind. I mean, yes, of course, that's one way Jesus feeds us and strengthens us for the work that we have to do. But it's not the only way. It's not the only way Jesus is the bread of life for us, giving us nourishment and strength. So maybe reading John 6 this particular year, in this exceptional time when we are not celebrating communion very often, we are invited to pay attention to the many ways that God feeds us, to the moments of grace that are all around us, all those little morsels of heavenly bread. You know who you don't want to sit in front of on an airplane? My son, Adrian. <laughs> He's two, almost two and a half now. And I'm sure someday it's going to be just fine to sit in front of him on a flight. But right now, when you get him strapped into his seat and he looks around and realizes he's not going anywhere for a while, 
he has decided that the best pastime available to him is kicking the seat in front of him. Not just like once or twice. No, he's decided this is sort of an endlessly interesting hobby and he can use it for any portion of a flight. Like I said, you don't want to be seated in front of him. Our flight from Geneva to Amsterdam a few weeks ago left bright and early at 7 in the morning. And this was when we discovered Adrian's new traveling hobby. He started in on that seat in front of him before we had taken off, and unless we had him unbuckled and out of his seat and sort of physically restrained on one of our laps, that's what he was doing, kicking away. And we were, of course, very conscious of how frustrating this must be to the unlucky person who'd been seated in front of him. And we did everything we could, but no matter what, Adrian could still get in a kick here and there. And a few minutes into the flight, the man seated in front of us turned around and snapped very frustratedly at Greta, excuse me. We felt bad, but what could we do? We restrained our child as much as we could for the rest of the flight, and we were just thankful it was only one hour. You know where this is going, right? So fast forward to our next flight, the long one from Amsterdam to Minneapolis. And we were really dreading this by now and just hoping there might happen to be an empty seat in front of Adrian. But no, the flight was largely full and soon after we took our seats, that row filled up too. And once again, Adrian started in before the flight began. Bang, bang, bang. And the man in that seat slowly turned around we braced ourselves for our second scolding of the morning and had our apology all ready. But this is what he said. How old is your child? Two. Don't worry about it. I've got kids of my own. I know what it's like. Everything's going to be fine. I'm telling you to a couple of tired parents at the start of an eight-hour flight, those words were pure grace bread from heaven. It's a very ordinary story, just a few words of kindness and empathy from somebody we had never seen before and would likely never see again. But those sorts of moments are, in fact, everywhere. Grace is all around us, and we just need to pay attention. A meal shared with loved ones, a late summer rain shower, an unexpected phone call from a friend, a smile or gesture of kindness from a stranger, a walk in the mountains, a book that says something just right and takes your breath away. So many things around us can be vehicles for grace, can remind us of Christ's presence in our world and in our lives. Jesus' invitation is simply to be open, to notice, to take it in. The crowds were so focused on one thing, all that bread they had yesterday, that they missed the new reality that Jesus was inviting them into. The reality that his presence right there with them is bread, sustenance, and nourishment, and life. It's an easy trap to fall into, missing what God is up to because you are so focused on something else, like how we can't share bread and wine today. So no. I can't invite you to the communion table this morning, but I can still invite you to feast on the bread of life that is in, with, and under all things.
to notice and honor Christ's presence all around you, in friends and loved ones and strangers, in songs of faith and in prayers offered, in the vitality and beauty of creation. He is heavenly bread to fill our deepest hunger, and he is present for you, now and always. Amen.